It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Chris, I um, was fishing around for a topic idea in climbing because we're kind of in the, what is it, the dog dog days of summer? Is the that dog the... days of summer, yes, yes. So unless and... you're in 10 sleep, there's no way that you could like send anything. <laughs> At least in the Northern Hemisphere. <laughs> yeah. Um, so like nothing's happening in climbing right now, as far as I can tell. <laughs> yeah, That's I'm like sure. The, that was Nothing. like this this other kind of idea I kind of wanted to bat around with you a little bit was just just how um you have you only have to do like one notable climb and then you can just like post you can get sponsored for life and then just like mm-hmm. post you know kilter board videos of yourself on Instagram and and call it good for the remainder of your climbing days but you know I I put out a, a feeler to just like ask people like for topic ideas and I got some really horrible ideas that. I don't think it would be very good for for a conversation. Like one of them was like, talk about, you know, how you shouldn't drop people when you're belaying them. (laughs) Three hours later, we're just like, yeah, and then the other thing. (laughs) It's like kind of self-evident. Like, I don't know what else there is to say about that. That guy's got an axe to grind, I think. <laughs> There's an incident that, that he, he, what he really wanted to say was like, you know, talk about how my friend Alan shouldn't <laughs> drop people. The other one that was kind of, this one actually is potentially a good one that we could revisit someday is the ethics of screaming while climbing in the gym. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that could, that could extend into the, the often a maligned wobbler as well, mm-hmm. you know, the outdoor wobbler. I don't know if that's an ethical question as much as like a, dec- I don't know, etiquette question. Yeah, decorum. And yeah. yeah, decorum, exactly. Yeah. Well, if you guys are listening to this and you have thoughts about the decorum of screaming in the gym, let us know so we have some fodder. My two cents on it is that you should not scream in the gym. Grunt? I think grunt's okay. Yeah, I mean, grunts are often involuntary. Yeah, more. So I mean, than that's the thing is like, you, isn't shouldn't the nature of a scream and a grunt be that you can't control it? Right. Totally. It's kind of like farting in public. Like, yeah, you shouldn't do it, but <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you just rip ass, and it makes everyone uncomfortable. But you, uh, you, Chris, is as um, sort of a notable podcaster. I think it's safe to mm-hmm. call you a notable podcaster <laughs> at this point. Um, notable. <laughs> You've been thinking long and hard about a topic for us to bat around today on on our intro. So what is it? What's your brilliant idea, Chris, notable podcaster? Well, um, we do like to talk about dirt bags on this show, dirt mm-hmm. bagging. We've we've discussed it at length. We had Cedar on with the dirt bag fund. And um for years the the mythical the mythical trust funder climber has been something that I've you know, I've I've actually like indulged in that maligned way of looking at a climber as some sort of trust funder. Um, mm-hmm. But then recently, I posted something on um, Instagram story or something, got some comments about the trust fund thing because I actually asked if it was a myth and if like it was as prevalent 
literally it seems like any time a climber and back in our day before the you know the sprinter van revolution had any nice things like anything you know mm-hmm. like maybe they had an electric shaver um you know <laughs> it was like oh, a guy's a trust funder you know like as soon as he like or he came you know he washed himself every day or something like that you're just like trust he had funder, one nice you know? shirt yeah exactly <laughs> having to have a collar on it you know so um uh, and certainly if they had like a nice rig or um or, or just oftentimes you sort of got this feeling that like they weren't grubbing the way you were and mm-hmm. so you you started to be suspicious um and that just became this kind of meme of oh they're a trust funder and which made me wonder because i've literally never met someone who at least openly explained their their um personal wealth as being from a trust fund and i think mm-hmm. that could be that i've never met one but it also could be that they know not to sort of advertise something like that and, and but it just seemed it seems like kind of this funny thing because i know anyone who sees someone with a built out sprinter is going to mumble trust funder um but certainly a person working like an okay job could afford a built out sprinter you know right. but we've like jumped into that and then it's gotten all murky because the work from the work from uh their van people you know have real jobs that they can sustain on the road and still climb two or three days a week which allows them to live a lifestyle that appears to be well funded and then we just fall back to like trust funds so it's got a little bit murky about this whole thing but i just kind of was wondering about where that meme came from why if it does really exist and then Furthermore, like why the resentment of not just trust funders, but people kept hitting me back with these messages of like, well, there may not be trust funders, but there's certainly a lot of people that have their parents' money to fall back on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, definitely with the hint of like, they're somehow cheating if that's the case. Right. Um, and I just kind of was wondering like, what, what are the basis for this kind of resentment? And also like, do we put our own, like, how do, how do you, like, if you're not completely destitute and you have some money coming from somewhere, are you then part of this group? And is there, like, a threshold you meet where you're no longer legit? Like, if your parents paid for college, are you not legit anymore? Are mm-hmm. you, you know what I mean? Like, but anytime it seems as though they're cheating, there's, like, this weird resentment. And I was kind of wondering what your thoughts about that were and... and where do you think that comes from? And is it, I mean, we've indulged in it, you know, we, yeah. we sort of like bag the van lifers and, you know, as, as somehow this nefarious group of people who are, who cheated their way to the top kind of thing. Well, Chris, um, you didn't disappoint me. That's a great conversation for a podcast. <laughs> um, I, I foresee you having a long uh, career as a podcaster if you keep coming up with ideas like this. So well done. Um, <laughs> wow, is this like a new leaf you've turned over? The affirmation guy? <laughs> your must, your I, therapist told you to, to give out more affirmation and you're like working on it this week or something? Well, you know, it's funny you say that. This is kind of a, this is a, a, a tangent, but um, since I have a busted uh, shoulder and I can't do anything, I've been... Um, I've been indulging or the only exercise I've been getting is on an exercise bike. And I've been taking these spin classes on the Apple fitness app and they're all just like extremely affirmative. 
it's like the most positive, you know, 40 minutes of my day. Like I often end in tears because Emily, the instructor is just like, you don't have to be perfect anymore. You can do this. And it's just like, I was just like, I've been like, oh my God, I would climb so much harder if I had Emily's voice in my head telling me how great I am instead of my own voice, you know, just telling me what a piece of shit I am. Um, Is Emily an AI produced voice or is it no she's just like a, a, if you can imagine the most bubbly um fitness instructor uh, you know cyclist whatever it is spin right. class instructor um that's her nice. so yeah the, anyway, so that's maybe, that, that, maybe that's where that saying. comes from yeah <laughs> i'm here to build people up i'm uh, turning thanks, over dude. a new leaf new this leaf for yep. new me but yeah to uh to just undermine what i just said i have huge amounts of resentment for trust funders <laughs> And uh, so I think that what you're saying is spot on. And I mean, I haven't thought about it too much. I mean, I think it's pretty evident why there's resentment for people who have like, it's just the impression that you get that they have all the means in the world and everything comes easy to them. They don't have to struggle. They don't have to, if their job's getting in the way of their, you know, climbing schedule, they can merely find a different job, you know, the job just being the the sort of cover that they have for the rest of polite society that makes them think that they, they need to be a, a contributing men, member of the economy. But mm-hmm. meanwhile, they're just sitting on uh, uh, Scrooge McDuck piles of uh, money that of they gold swim in coins. Every, gold coins <laughs> that they swim in at, at home. Um, so, I mean, I think that's where that comes from. It's just, it's the idea that people, are living it easier, having it easier, doing it, doing more, and they're not being honest about it, right. or they're um, they're not sharing or disclosing the degree to which that basis, you know, f- that allows them to live the life that they're living, is part of the equation, and it isn't for right. other people. And I think that's where that comes from. It's like it's it's just a sense, like, oh, well, I could climb, you know, five whatever if I just you know, had a million dollars. And, um, that's probably true, more true than it is false. You know, there, if you, <laughs> if you actually did have like all the money in the world and all the time, you, you, you could certainly climb harder. I think that's, that's a fair thing to say. Um, you, you probably yeah, would never be like the best climber in the world or anything like that, but you could certainly improve your, your climbing abilities if, if money was no, of no consequence. Yeah, but I I don't know. I just still feel like, well, if that was the case, isn't there some sort of logic problem that says then the best climber in the world should be a trust funder? And I I mean, you know, there's something to be said for, I guess, like the work it takes when you you don't have everything coming easy and maybe that also helps you like get after it. But the thing that I I kind of find interesting and, and let's like focus this on climbing. Um, and so what we're talking about as far as the resentment comes with this idea that, yeah, they're at the cliff all the time doing whatever they want and you're stuck at fucking work. And I mean, really, doesn't it just come down to jealousy then? Because if you were offered that position, would you say, no, I'm st- I'm going to stay working, you know, as a barista at, you know, Starbucks? I mean, Molly Mitchell, last time I talked to her, which was a while back, I don't know what she's up to now, but she was a a barista at Starbucks while she was climbing all that hard shit, you know, mm-hmm. would she have taken the trust fund had it been offered? Of course she would. Yeah. You know? So it's like, I and, and some people mention that in, in the DMs like, yeah, it just seems to be jealousy that makes everybody upset because 
Would we give it away? Would we do some other thing with it that was more purposeful than climbing? Should like a windfall come our way? Aren't we all just like dealing with our own circumstances at some level? I think that the jealousy is one aspect of it. And the jealousy points to this, this idea that you would, you wish that you had what they had. And so that's, that's jealousy. Like you, you wish that you could have all of the, um, you know, the support and money or whatever, privilege, freedom, et cetera, to, to do what they're doing. But I think the resentment is pointing to a different aspect of it, which is the lack of discussion or honesty or just disclosure of the fact that there's this infrastructure supporting the things that talking about that are so great about your life. Mm. I think that's where the resentment comes from. It's like, if people were, you know, if everyone started, every trust funder started their Instagram post with like a <laughs> a disclaimer or trigger warning about how the, you know, they're, they come from a trust funding background. And so you feel free to just ignore every subsequent word that comes in this post about how beautiful their trip to Southern France was or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be, I think that, that would like alleviate the, re- the feelings of resentment. And the resentment is really only because comes out i think when you know like once you know that that person has those things but they're not talking about it which makes sense i, I cer- if i was a trust funder i certainly wouldn't you know be holding up a sign telling everyone i meet that i that i had a trust fund well yeah isn't that the problem i'm just saying it's 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 like an it's natural for the trust funder to not want to disclose that but it's all i think the resentment is also a natural reaction to that it's a natural reaction if if that person, let's say, has some sort of public about these things and, and maybe seems to be, you know, not telling the truth. I mean, the the thing that that got me started on this with like posting it on my Instagram was, you know, a headline from the um, the hardtimes.net, which is like an onion type site and, and kind of music oriented, but they do culture. And their thing was like this travel article about, and it says how I traveled the world with nothing but a backpack and a immense trust fund. And so, <laughs> you know, this like, in the article that goes with it is this advice column, obviously about how easy it is to do, you know, and, and you, and it's a, obviously a parody of so many of those things, Yeah. but you know, and so I get that, but what if it's just somebody out there doing stuff? I mean, one person I've talked to about this is Josh Wharton, you know, incredible climber, very prolific all over the world, probably continually, but certainly in his younger years, got that accusation all the time of, of having a trust fund, you know, and it's like, he didn't have a trust fund. You know, he probably had some level of family money because his mother passed away when he was young. And he said that there was some, some insurance there, some life insurance that he got and he was able to buy his house and rifle his original house and rifle and things like that. But it certainly wasn't the idea of this like endless pool of wealth that he could just draw from until for the rest of time, because his daddy was like a bank owner in the 1920s or some shit, you know, Mm -hmm. like this idea of this true trust fund. And I just talked to Tyler Caro, who, you know, also is kind of spent this three years like kicking ass and, he said throughout that too, people were like, what are you, how do you do this? Like, are you on some sort of trust fund? And um, no, he had had a real job as a civil engineer. He'd saved his money and lived frugally. And then he had enough to do three years. And when it was over, he started a van building business and then 
sold some vans and then did a few other things. You know, it's like, it's not a trust fund. It's someone with a job. And anyway, so it's just, it just is funny because it's like, it doesn't matter if the person, I don't think the person necessarily, unless they have some smarmy attitude online about how easy it all is. Like, I don't see why they should sit around disclosing where their money comes from. I don't think that's part of typical Craig conversations or anything. I mean, Wharton didn't owe anybody any reason to say, well, here's how I finance all this. You know, that's the thing about like, it's all imagined. Most of it's imagined. You know, you walk by a big old van, you're like, ah, trust fund. And it's like, no, dude's mom died and he's got some insurance money and he spent it on a van. Like, end of equation yeah you know, in some people's cases or whatever yeah we have we have a real uh problem with recognizing just the role of luck and the role of well even the role of just you know uh hardwired genes or something like that like you know all of those things like anytime someone seems to be doing better than you in life you like point to it, it seems common to point to some thing that you could change or that could or ought have been otherwise you know like well if only i had uh, money i could be doing that too or if only you know blah 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 then i I would be at that level but you know it it just doesn't work that way like life doesn't work that way and i agree with you i don't think that like trust funders need to you know put up a sign that's a that declares their status as as such and I think you're also right that there's this, there's a lot of gradations and levels to it. Like there's the truly rich people who have fuck you money. And then there's, you know, all kinds of levels of like, well, I, you know, make a living, but you know, if I really needed help, my parents could bail me right. out or, you know, or, you know, I, yeah, I had my college tuition paid for and, right. um, and that allowed me to nominally go to school but really fuck off and like climb all the time and uh and get a degree from uh you know some butt fuck school in durango or something like that you know (laughs) um (laughs) the four lewis people are like hey wait a minute (laughs) yeah that's the one i was thinking of um this is this reminds me of this other conversation that happened in the broader culture about nepo babies like people mm-hmm. were really, for a while, I, I saw on Twitter, there was a bunch of people t- having a similar level of discourse about celebrities whose parents were in, you know, in Hollywood and who became mm-hmm. celebrities themselves, like Drew Barrymore. And um, I don't know, like Anderson Cooper comes from the Rockefellers or something like that. And like you, you start like looking into all of the people who are true celebrities, who are people who are, I don't know, not even celebrities like actors or actresses, but just people who are columnists at the New York times or people who have, Mm -hmm. you know, who write anyone who writes a column for like, (laughs) like a a paper or something like that is not making a living doing that. And so they come from money and it's this struggle that we have with identifying like those people could all be talented people. Like they, they it's, you shouldn't take away the fact that they are smart, intelligent, you know, and have gifts unto themselves. But they also had a head start in some ways too. And mm-hmm. it just doesn't seem like too much of a stretch to just try to reconcile those two things and be okay with them. But I do understand where that resentment comes from, from people who don't have that head start. I think there's also this whole thing that we've been going through for some years with the demographics of climbing, you know, minority rep- representation in climbing and realizing, you know, like everybody can toss that off that like, oh yeah, it's just like 
this, you know, middle class white people sport, which is, you know, by and large true still. Um, but that's just the thing is that then you you roll that backwards. And if, if that's the demographic we're dealing with, the socioeconomic demographic we're dealing with, then, of course, there's some back, you know, some some backup support from a lot of parents and things like that. And it's and then also the you know, the word privilege comes in there, which is sort of a hot button topic as well. But the thing I have, I ask people that are, you know, again, resentful of that person out there, that kid, whatever, that's like living in the dirt. And, you know, if he did have like a major accident, his parents could pay for his surgery or whatever. Like, you know, is is that really something to, you know, resent him for? And what, what should he do with that, like, circumstance of his life? I mean... Odds are he's not going to have an accident and his parents aren't going to have to pay for surgery. But do you know what I mean? Like, what? why is that a problem? It's not something that you can give away. It's not something that you can change about your circumstances. And it's not something that anyone would reject if it happened to them. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't yeah. understand why we have this problem with like, well, they have their parental backup to go. Is it because they're they're only pretending to dirtbag and, and, you know, homeless people are really dirtbagging and we should... Do you know what I mean? There's like this weird like guilt thrown on it when really just this kid or guy wants to like climb for three or four years before he goes and gets a real job. And somehow yeah. that's like I think awful if- or he's like a horrible oppressor because he's out there doing it and something happens to him. Yeah, he gets to go home. It is, yeah, it is I th- fun I think is you, over I for think the you moment. Just kind of Do you know what I mean? It's weird. Yeah, I think you just drew like an interesting distinction between re- being resentful of the circumstance and versus being resentful of the individual. And mm-hmm. I think that's like an important thing to keep in mind um, because you're obviously not the same. And it doesn't make sense to be resentful for an individual who didn't choose to have the fortunes that they've had. Like th- that was all just luck that they fell into. And so you can rue the universe for for you know, working out the way it did, but, and, and that does make sense, but it doesn't, you know, that person, that individual didn't choose that circumstance, you know? So I think that's like a, that's an interesting, um, realization to come to. Yeah. I mean, and then it falls back to the old trope of like, well, climbing's meaningless and it's a, you know, essentially a selfish act and, you know, all these other sort of ways in which we couch this thing we love as this horribly, negative thing as if instead of three years you know living on the road and climbing you should have gone and been an aid worker somewhere Mm -hmm. which you know obviously in in some sort of fairy tale that's true that would be a better use of your time but that's not something that anyone should be expected to do or most of us aren't going to choose that path whether we were climbing or not but there's this weird thing where climbers want to point out what a big waste of time what we're doing is as we're doing it and um and i just just i completely disagree with that um that it's yeah. a big waste of time i so. i, I but see you what, what i mean it's I all built on saying. that like i see what you're saying the but trust me... funders should be out building schools for children right it's like well what are you doing yeah you have a certain level of money that you could give away as well but well i will you know what I mean? yeah let me just add this one piece <laughs> to it because there is this like annoying aesthetic that we've built around the the dirt bag, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I got an email from Patagonia at some point this summer that was telling me to buy dirt bag shorts, which is like their little baggies <laughs> shorts or whatever. And they're $65. Like 
They're not cheap shorts, you know. They're not protecting. You can like, get a pair of very similar shorts at Walmart for like yeah, totally. thirteen dollars, and they're 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 the same quality too. Like it's not even right. like they're. It's just like it's all stupid. Like it's a stupid aesthetic that is trying to, mm-hmm. um, and like even like you know true trust funders don't walk around in like ascots and. You know, like at the like, crack. Yeah, they they wear they they look the part of dirtbag, and they try to blend right. in, and they look like they're that. Well, they're, wait, 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 wait. Oh, go ahead. Well, I'm just saying that like, it's we. That's yeah. that's the like culture and like look and the values, but it's it. There is this like dishonesty that kind of simmers underneath all of that, and the dishonesty is that if you really do want to like just fuck off and like climb all the time and not do anything. Oftentimes you are going to be coming from a privileged background and have money and, and be rich and stuff like that. So, yeah. and you're going to play dirt bag. You're going to play this like cosplay dirt bag by buying Patagonia dirt bag shorts and like, you know, looking, you know, putting the, the, uh, camp four dust on your <laughs> mascara on your eyes and, ha- and, you know, like it's just part of this like whole like weird aesthetic that is, that goes into, what we call dirtbag you could just like be critical of that i think and just say like why does it need to be that way like why are we fooling ourselves like why not just be a little more honest with the fact that this isn't that these people aren't like dirtbags necessarily they're just choosing to use their position of wealth and privilege to climb all the time and that's that's all it is like they're not sacrificing necessarily anything they're doing what they want to do Mm-hmm. And they're making the choice to do that, right? And they um, have the means to do that. So that's, I think, I think there is something annoying about that kind of distance between the the myth of the image and what it portends mm-hmm. versus the reality that is kind of lurking underneath it. And I got an email recently. It's, I'm just remembering someone who was just like, you know, it, it, he like reached out for career advice or something, but it was more. It, I mean, like I have no career advice to offer anyone, so please don't ask me, but it was more, you know, as we like had a couple exchanges, I, I got the sense that it it was more <coughs> his frustration with like, you know, when I look at social media, I see everyone like climbing all the time and living these amazing lives. And are they <laughs> like, are they all just like trust funders and do they not have to like work because I need a job and I need to work. And so it, it was like coming to the, and I kind of affirmed him. I was like, yeah, that's probably what most of what you're seeing online is. And those people don't need jobs and they don't need to work right now. Maybe that's going to change in the future for them. But like, that's just, that's how it is. Like, don't, don't feel bad or don't beat yourself up because they they don't know anything that you don't know. They just happen to be luckier than you are. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, that, I think validates the, those feelings of resentment like that, that the fact that that isn't on the surface and you have to reach out to someone who might know like myself or whatever to try to be affirmed that, that this is the real truth of the situation. Um, I could see how that, that could lead to feelings of resentment. I I see how it leads to feelings of resentment. I just feel like everybody should take a step back and realize in like this person's case like it's all that's all curated because no one whips their camera out when they're when they're mopping the back room at starbucks like or whatever i mean like 
point out again, Molly Mitchell, you know, when I interviewed her at some point or we interviewed her, that was her job mm-hmm. was she was a barista. And it's like, no, she's not posting pictures of her barista-ing. Right. <laughs> um, she's only posting pictures of her climbing. And right. so it seems as though she had no job, but she had a job. Right. You know, she was moderately sponsored, but but still had to to put money in her pocket. And, um, you know, and Andy Rather comes up to as, as someone who, you know, dirt bagged and lived in rifle forever. And, uh, famously named a root stock boys revenge because he also worked at the fucking grocery store in in rifle, you know, and had he been a, yeah. which is especially desperate person. if you've ever been to yeah. the grocery store. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, but I'm, I don't think he, he had much of a internet presence then. It wasn't such a big deal yeah. then. Um, he has one now, but you know, he wasn't posting pictures of him stock Boeing or he wouldn't have been. Mm-hmm. So that's all a big illusion. And then again, like, I mean, I just kind of fall back on this thing of like, they have their circumstances, you have yours. You have your tolerance for what's, you know, too luxurious to you, you know, living in this type of vehicle is a dirtbag. But then, like I've always said, there's the there's the cat in the 91 Celica who's dirtbagging harder than you are. And mm-hmm. <clears throat> we all have our lines, you know, mm-hmm. and um, it's not like I'm immune to it. I, I definitely have, like I said, started this with, I've said it over the years too, but I just feel as though it's like, yeah, why don't you just circle your own wagons and like keep up with your own shit, you know, instead of worrying about why that guy seems to be climbing harder than you. Cause I think that's also like you've mentioned in here, part of it is like, well, I could climb that hard if and it's like, yeah, maybe. And probably not. Because there's also a lot of talent involved. It's not just the fact that they're at the cliff all the time. Because I found a lot of those people that are at the cliff all the time, they don't climb for shit, mm-hmm. frankly. Right. Because <laughs> it's like, it's almost like a, a you know, it's like an abundance problem where it's like they aren't challenged. So, you know, f- climbing the same 511 in Indian Creek season after season keeps them happy. So, you know, so it's like, it doesn't actually equal that either. It's just funny. One thing I also wanted to say was about the, the sort of trying, you know, you mentioned the ascots or whatever, which would be amazing. Um, <laughs> you know, and you have your butler that like belays you or whatever. Belay butler. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, I mean, that'd be, that'd be great. But I mean, isn't that what trust fund? Friends, like, really, my French like, butler yeah. with a gris gris, yeah. le gris gris. <laughs> le gris gris. Um, I kind of like move away from like trying to, hide it it's like the aesthetic of climbing is the aesthetic and everybody wants to be a a, you know wants to sort of fit in but it's also like there's function in in what we wear and what we do as climbers as well Mm -hmm. and um you know so it's just like i i kind of step back at this idea of hiding it because they they you know are a little bit grubby and they're wearing crummy shorts when they could be wearing what like i don't know designer jeans i mean what would you expect like a rich person to wear climbing no they wear what's functional and what's functional happens to be the same thing everybody wears and do you know what i mean like i don't know that they're trying to hide their wealth or you know just because they're wearing what everybody else is wearing yeah no that's and and that's where i keep coming back to like all right so what duder's got some money good for him or her well, as we were talking about this, I was just thinking about the, there's there's this whole other demographic that is becoming more and more uh, salient to us as we um, gently uh, age, Chris. And um, <laughs> those are the folks who are not necessarily trust funders, but have retired early and have mm-hmm. amassed a, a you know enough of a fortune in order to 
enjoy their 40s and 50s and into the into the twilight of their lives just climbing because they've um, mm-hmm. balled hard and they can like afford to do shit invest invested well yeah and um yeah i have less uh, resentment for them because you know at least they like you know made their money and stuff but but did they who knows you know right. yeah. like yeah they made their money like trump did you know <laughs> yeah. they inherited a bunch of uh, a bunch of real estate somewhere like right. you don't know that's the thing right. is unless you want to have an in-depth conversation with anybody they were fracking executives know. you know right yeah. exactly and and I, I mean i think it's all tinged again by this idea of privilege mm-hmm. and that we are pretend in some weird not pretending to be poor because that's not that's what I keep getting at is it's not we're not pretending it's just it's how you function you know if you want to go to Indian Creek and climb a lot you don't stay in a hotel somewhere or have a, a Airbnb you go out there and you live it's just a functional way in which to go climbing right. and if you have a nice rig that's fine too but like you're not out there necessarily hiding. Right. And that's, I think the weird resentment is, and you've, you've, your language has kind of been in there too, is this idea that you're, you're somehow like you should be staying at the nicest hotel in Vegas Mm -hmm. and not slumming with six of your friends at an Airbnb. But it's like, that's what you should do if you want to get a lot of climbing done. Right. I, you know what I mean? Like, how do you, yeah, it's just like this weird, we have, rules in which we want these people to follow or whatever and again these people it's like i don't even know if they exist because there's this whole thread of things that we talked about work from the road people and people who retired because they made a whole shitload of money people who saved some money for a few years they can all appear the same as this supposed mythical guy who's you know parents invented the zipper and now he doesn't have to work anymore whatever mm-hmm. you know like, i just don't know who that person is i mean i know one maybe <laughs> well i think this will all just go a lot easier if everyone just declares all the ways that they're privileged at all times and in all mm-hmm. interactions and I, I, yeah, i'll totally start right, right now by just declaring my podcaster privilege um and uh yeah and we'll see how that goes <laughs> Just leave like financial statements pasted <laughs> to your window of your van. Yeah. That's all I want. Right? Just I just want to look at your portfolio. Yeah, let's see. You know, those, see what's in there. See how many zeros are in your account. And then we can talk. I've just got one. You know what I'm saying? Our guest today is the great Russ Kloon, a climbing legend of the Shawangunks in New York, where he's established notable first ascents. His new book is The Lifer, Rock Climbing Adventures in the Gunks and Beyond. Are you a good golfer? Do you play with any regularity? Not anymore. I mean, when I was a kid, I grew up playing golf. So that's what I did for, you know, a lot of young years, but... uh, the last time I played with any kind of regularity is when some of the rangers here at the Mohawk Preserve decided to start playing the nine-hole course at the Mountain House. So we started doing that in the afternoons. With, but that's a dozen years ago at least. Yeah. How about you guys who play ever play? Russ, we have similar backgrounds. Um, I'm a New Yorker too, and I grew up playing golf and started climbing at the Gunks. So all things that were, I was just <laughs> thinking about are, are similar similarities uh, <laughs> while reading your book. 
Um, oh, yeah, I, get- I golfed a little, but I was forced into it and, and quickly rebelled um, <laughs> where I would run down. I would play what I called polo golf, which is I would just run along and whack at the ball as I as I ran down the, the fairway and uh, my parents put a stop to that, which was of course the plan when I started doing it. So well they done. left me home. They left me home when they went golfing from that point on. <laughs> yeah, I have a younger brother who was taking up the sport as well, but my father banned him after he broke his second set of clubs. So oh, man. Well he would just watch rage. Tree. Yeah, oh, totally. He'd hit like, oh. hit a bad shot, hit a tree, bust another club. But dad was like, you know, this is not your game. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe boxing is more like it for you. <laughs> Before we dive too hard into the whole book thing, which is ostensibly why we're here, tell us about this trip to Brazil because I saw the pictures and Andrew and I have a mutual friend who backed up how awesome that place is. He'd been there a little while ago. So tell me a little bit about that trip down to Brazil. Blow that place up. Um, it amazing. Well, yeah, it's kind of already blown up a little bit. The right. um so Cerro has become essentially the premier sport climbing area in the country. It's kind of like their Red River Gorge. Sorry, Colorado, but it's like their Red River Gorge. There's a so stack juggy of and easy. Is that what you're yeah, saying? super juggy. I mean, you know, nothing nothing harder than five eleven nodes graded five fourteen. It's really it's super that way. <laughs> it's it's insane. But um, a buddy of mine who uh, lives in the Adirondacks, Jim Lawyer, he wrote the Adirondack Guidebooks. He went there last year. I can't remember for how long. I think it was six weeks or so. But he loved it so much, he booked a trip down there this year for three months. So he made it super easy for us. You know, he hooked me up with a, a house to get next to his. And so Amy and I uh, went down for three weeks. <clears throat> and Jim was there with his uh, yellow entourage from uh, his area. He lives in around Syracuse. And it was a, it was a great deal for um, the hardest thing. The rock is this metamorphosed limestone really, really hard. Like part of it before it became uh, protected was used as a quarry for marble. I mean, that's how hard the rock is. And when you first see it, well, you really can't see much of it. Cerro de Sipo literally means mountain of vines. So it's just kind of in this jungle of trees and vines, and you really can't see that much rock. But you start going down these trails, and you come to these chasms and little valleys, and you know it's just uh, rock all over the place, very complex formation. And it climbs almost like granite in a way. It reminded me like almost like Rumney. It, it was uh, really super bouldery climbing, uh, but there's some really big long routes. Some routes are as much as you know, almost 70 meters long. And you also have shorter stuff, but really bouldery. Um, and there's not a lot uh, under 5.11 there. It's just the nature of the rock. It just doesn't allow for that. There are some steep stuff, but more or less, it's kind of like gently overhung for the most part with, uh, like I said, you know, bulges and little boulder problems everywhere. And the, uh, well, the first two routes I got, first two 512As I got on, I didn't get past the third bolt. I was like, how does a 12A have a B6 crux in it? So <laughs> you got to be prepared for some of that kind of stuff. In a little way, it kind of reminds me a little bit of like New Paltz, where you drive an hour and a half in the biggest city, which is uh, Belo Horizonte. It's a huge city that is uh, not that far from there. And the town you come to, Cerro is like, uh, it's almost like a little tourist town. Um, it's got this one big main drag with a bunch of uh, little restaurants and places to eat and shops. And it seems like everybody there owns an Airbnb because people come from the city for the weekend. And the climbing area, while it's on private property, it actually borders this major national park with tons of trails and waterfalls. So the place gets you know pretty packed on the weekends. But beautiful area, and it's not hard to get to. It's pretty pretty easy trip. 
So if I have this correct, the Serra de Cipo is the Red River Gorge of Brazil that climbs like Romney and has New Paltz characteristics and flavor. There you go. And it has, I think, about 900 <laughs> roots now. <laughs> so who's been uh, like the push to develop? Has it been Brazilians? Has there been visiting people? Um, yeah, who's who kind of discovered and developed it? Uh, you know, I, I really can't speak to that very effectively. Mm-hmm. It was mostly Brazilians. Okay. It, it was also happening around, uh, I think it started mostly in the late-ish 80s. Mm-hmm. And it was, it's developed, you know, piecemeal through uh, that time. And it's a very healthy Brazilian climate community now that's, uh, and there's a lot of rock. You know, they're one of the, the big things they have right now is they have sectors of rock that extend into the national park they want to develop. And they're working out with the national park, the protocol for doing that. And if when that happens... I mean, the place is going to have a lot of climbs, but I think everything's always going to end up be kind of kind of hard. The rock just doesn't, you're not going to get that, uh, you know, Muir Valley uh, wall of five eights for, for folks coming out of the gym. But at the same time, it's just, you know, it's just gorgeous. And I had a really interesting side trip to, well, a side effect of that trip is uh, one of the uh, people who've, who lives down there in Cerro de Cipo now, and he owns a, a little a climber's campground and hostel. Uh, Marcelo Braga. It turned out that Marcelo was uh, one of the Brazilian climbers that uh, I climbed with 39 years ago in Rio. And the last time I was in Brazil with Tony Her, you Her's brother. And uh, Marcelo was uh, at that time, he's probably about six, seven years younger than, than me. And uh, he was a you know young climber kind of starting out in his late teens. And Tony and I had spotted this new route we wanted to do on on uh, on Sugarloaf, Pau but we needed bolts, and the only bolt the only bolts we could get were from Marcelo. So he became part of our team, and we we kind of put up a new route together there. But it was great to see him. You know, I hadn't seen him in uh, about thirty nine years. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, my uh, my little joke there, Russ, about um, your catalog of references describing this place um, was leading into a question I or just an observation I have, which is, you know, you've you've obviously been climbing for a long time and you've traveled extensively and have to just this catalog of references of different rocks and cultures and stuff around the world. But are you one of those people who keeps track of um, how, how many countries you've been to or crags you visited? Or, I know some people have that as like a, their own little sub tick list and in, the, in their greater, you know, tick list uh, books of climbing routes and stuff. But um, is that something that you keep track of? Well, you know, I get asked how many questions, how many cl- countries have I climbed in over the years, and my question back is, what what's a country? Because it, I mean, did I climb in Yugoslavia when it was Yugoslavia, or now does that now Slovenia and and Croatia? I mean, it's it's kind of silly. Was it the USSR, or is it now Ukraine and well, <laughs> in Russia, or was it uh, East Germany versus so? And, and well, yeah, t- and tell any Welshman that. Uh, that they're part of uh, England, <laughs> so I, you know, I it's do I keep track, kind of, sort of. I mean, I have a journal, so I know where I've been and know what crags I've been to. But uh, I've loosely I've climbed in sixty odd countries, some something in in that world. Yeah, I mean, it's such like you're you know reading your book, um, and also just hanging out with you, and and you know I've I've had the privilege of just sitting around and and uh, listen to you tell stories in person um, of multiple occasions. And it's always been such a hallmark of your climbing and of you as a climber is this 
this Jones to travel and you started really early and it seems like you've never said no to a trip or said, you know, obviously you have, but like you're so open to an experience of going somewhere, you know, even maybe obscure, maybe a bizarre form of climbing, like somewhere in Russia or something like that, but you've always been game to do that. Can you um, talk a little bit about that as a passion and that as uh, a part of your personality to have been a guy that was just always open to, to moving around the world and experiencing new ways of climbing, new ways of looking at climbing, meeting new people, all that stuff that goes with, uh, with the life that you've led as a traveling climber. What came first, my love of climbing, my love of travel. I'm, and I'm not entire. well, I think climbing is, is it. But I, I mentioned this in the book too, when I was you know, starting out climbing and I wanted to get good it was a time when Kim Kerrigan was visiting the Gunks. And, uh, you know, he really encouraged the idea of traveling and climbing with as many of the best climbers as he can to improve, which makes sense, right? At the time, this is all pre-sport climbing still, but it's like go out there, see what's in the world, see what's happening in Europe, see what's happening in Australia, get out and, and check it out. You meet some people, then you meet some more people, and pretty soon you're getting invitations to go here and go there, and you realize there's a lot more uh a lot more opportunity for climbing than you even first thought. And of course, this is also still in the, uh, you know, early 80s, where there's not a lot of opportunity for just uh, finding things out easily. You find out from talking to people from magazines or whatever. And I just found it so rewarding. I just loved going to new places, uh, seeing how I matched up against what they had. Uh, and and uh, I, just the camaraderie that, that existed in climbing then was... Uh, it was so, so uber tribal. It was really, um, if you didn't know who was at the crag already, you were going to know them in the course of a week there because there just weren't that many people. And uh, the, the great experiences so far outweighed any kind of uh, drudgery involved with going and figuring out how to get there that I, I just always, I became addicted to it, I suppose. Yeah, the, the, it kind of, as you were just talking there, Russ, I was just kind of musing about how travel can go both ways as a climber, um, or just that there's a joyful part of travel, which is, you know, traveling yourself to go see a new place and test yourself against the rock, as you put it. But there's also this um, element of having visiting climbers come to your home turf and watching what what they get on and how they perform and stuff on routes that you know. Um, and you know, you're, you're referencing this time in climbing when, you know, uh, information was scarce and limited and, and kind of limited to magazines and in-person interactions and stuff. And you weren't inundated with, uh, you know, feeds of people sending the NAR in every place around the world on your, on your smartphone, you know, I get a sense that there's like a preciousness to that period of time for you. And maybe you could just, um, riff on any of that if you, if you'd like. Those of us who are a little older can always look back on when we started and romanticize that. And I'm not saying it wasn't romantic, but I just really wonder about sometimes about some 16-year-old starting out today and these, you know, 50 years from now, they're still climbing like, oh my God, it was so back in the day we had all those gyms and we didn't have to, the crowds were less. I mean, who knows? <laughs> who knows what, it, what it'll be like. But it was so easy to secure a place on the speed climbing team back in the day. <laughs> well, you know, think about it. I mean, it's so true. It's it's uh, it's it's just. Uh, I mean, climbing is so blown up, and that's that's one of the things that I kind of like going to a place where I'm not going to run into so many people. It's harder to do that, but it's uh, 
Well, last year when I uh, saw you, Chris, out at you know Deep Creek, a place that's not exactly uh, you know uh, on on the map for a ton of people, especially now that you have to walk down to that field and be attacked by sheep herding dogs. It's a uh, Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it, it was such a pleasure to go back to a place like that in this beautiful environment and uh, basically have it be, you know, I mean, relatively solitary, a few other people, and and it was very, very fun. It's not that rifle can't be fun on the weekend, but it's a little harder to make it fun, especially if uh, you know you're trying to get in line for a warm up. But it's just the way climbing is now. I mean, it's a popular sport. It's not a a weird activity that a bunch of losers go do because they got no friends like it was back when i did it <laughs> <laughs> well i mean part of your storied career i think also is fascinating and 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 really draws people to it myself in particular but you know you you were a, a good enough climber an elite level climber and that might make you blush but it, it's just true and and therefore you sort of ran in this very small crowd and a lot of those names that you you hung out with have become mythologized in our thinking and you know I was talking to Scotty Franklin um I think last year and he's of your era and from your same zone and you know he mentioned that is that like you would just you would move about the world and there would be this crew of of you know good kind of semi-professional climbers whatever you called professional climbing back then would be there and we they would all hang out and he's like yeah i just knew these folks because there were not that many of them and they were the ones that were able to travel everywhere but you know to say that you had a friendship with wolfgang gulick and with kurt albert and with todd skinner and did all these crazy adventures is uh you know as as andrew mentioned this word precious but there was this time that's become mythologized and you were right there in it can you sort of explain like that you know, group of people coalescing around climbing in Europe and competitions and all those all those sorts of things that were coming through in the eighties when when that was uh, a part of your life. I think part of that, Chris, is that for one thing, you got to remember that back in the nineteen uh, seventies and through the mid eighties, even into almost the late eighties, the Gunks was a place where a lot of the best climbers in the world came to at one point or another, especially before sport climbing and the, before the development of places like the Red or the or the Rifle or you know, before the bolts went in. So I met people like, well, I met Wolfgang in just somebody originally. I met Kim Kerrigan here. And so I met uh, I met Jerry in England. So when you start to meet these people, then especially, you know, I'll bet you it's not so different right now. If you think about a certain level of climber, if you're, a, if you're sitting there in kind of the A or B team, you're going to intermingle with a lot of those people, right? Because that's who you climb with. So I was climbing at a level that was, I mean, I wasn't as good as Wolfgang, I wasn't as good as Jerry, but I was good enough to go hang and go do roots with them. So when you think about that, it's just natural. It's just not that weird at all. And it was, there just weren't that many climbers at that time doing that stuff. And there were even fewer who were traveling the way I was. Virtually, I mean, any long trip I made, almost all those trips were solo because who else is going to go take off for four months to go someplace to be able to take off from work? So it wasn't that weird. Yeah, it's actually, I think Scotty told some story about uh, pa Patrick Alanger showing up to the gunks as well um, and sort of smoking up some roots that were, you know, the locals thought were really hard kind of thing too. So yeah, it, it is kind of fascinating the way the, a place like the gunks was a was a magnet for hard climbing and, and to come and, and sort of t test yourself against for even for foreign climbers. 
Oh, I remember when Petri came, I think that was 85. I think I'd just <clears throat> uh, come back from uh, Europe. And I mean, I knew, how, you know, the Europeans climbed so much better at that point than, than most climbers in the States. And I always found it ridiculous that there would be this uh, snootiness from American climbers about, oh, it's like, oh, they, they're sport climbers. Oh, they hang on the rope or they're, you know, they don't know how to climb cracks, which was such utter bullshit. And a trip like uh, like Patrick's, where he he comes he, he comes to the states and basically just trivializes every single hard route, year <laughs> or not, just like just urinates all over it. Qu'est-ce que le problème? Ce n'est pas difficile. Pas de foutre. It was it was absolutely great to to uh, see it, and uh, I expected it. I wasn't surprised. I was surprised at how well he did some things or how quickly. But I was like, yeah, of course, man. And that's what people like Patrick and uh, and uh, Wolfgang and, and and even you know even the Brits. I mean, you know, Jer- when Jerry was here, uh, his I think his last trip, uh, Jerry Moffat's last trip to the Gunks was I think in '88, and he just you know he just smoked through everything, almost. There's a couple of routes that Scott Franklin had done that he found to be a little troublesome. <laughs> yeah, that was Scott. Scott made sure and, and point that out in his interview too. So <laughs> there was, by the way, that story. I'll try and remember it, but uh, you know Scott had this really hard route. It's 13D called Cybernetic Wall, and it has this really shitty little finger jam in it that Jerry apparently was finding it to be troublesome. So when uh, Jerry was explaining that to Scott one evening, Scott was like, "What do you mean that 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 finger lock? He goes, dude, I can hang from dead hang out and do a one arm." Jerry's like, "Bullshit! No fucking way! No way! You can't do that." Well, they go out there, and Scott goes up. He does a one arm. I think it was about a year later, I was out in uh, Smith Rock with Ed Langer. We were doing his movie Arrowhead. I can't remember. I think it's called Jam Master J. There's some kind of a 13D boulder problem thing. We got to use this really crappy little finger hold to, to hold on to his crux move. And Scott was having trouble with it. And Jerry said, Jerry goes up there and he goes, this one, this Scott. And he starts chalking up off that hold. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I love, I, you, know, I, you know, we often lament on the podcast about how you know, the days of, of like cheerily burning each other off are sort of like frowned upon now. But I just love that part of that era because there's so many stories, um, especially cross-border kind of rivalries between the French and the English and yeah, stuff like that. And just like people just like openly burning each other off with root names and with, with uh, you know, coming and, and trying to do each other's roots faster and hard, you know, with less tries and just so it was just so openly like trying, you know, versus oh, like this kind of subtle. Yeah. Yeah. No, so I, I kind of Jer- missed that. <laughs> Moffat was, was master of that. He didn't make it. Yeah. He wasn't shy about burning you off. I mean, I have third degree burns left over scars. from <laughs> Jerry. <laughs> um, so Russ, part, part of this, uh, you know, I guess in a way you, you didn't really invent, vent this itinerant traveling climber mold but but you know again it, it's such a hallmark of your life and you did mention how at least for your group of friends it was hard to find people that could do that or or um or would do that um one of the other things i think you sort of shirked and and again it might be part of your personality and who you are is you know coming up in the gunks that you know it's also famous for the rules and for being this staunchly traditional place and Oh, each like generation before scoffing at these like new wimpy tactics of the next generation, whether it was pitons or whether it was rehearsing roots on top rope or, you know, finally 
you know, hang dogging and all these sorts of things. Um, why is it, or what is it about you that you seems to have often been, and maybe I'm mischaracterizing you, but that you were, you were thinking a little bit ahead and, and never sort of felt yourself getting stuck behind these sort of ethical walls where you weren't allowed to do things a certain way. Um, also noting, you know, one of the reasons the, the Europeans were such better climbers at that time had a lot to do with, you know, these rules that, that American climbers were putting on themselves. So talk about being a little bit of an iconoclast as far as like not letting yourself be super trapped by the, the kind of rules that other people had decided on. Well, to a degree, I was pretty chicken shit about bringing the rules I saw in Europe to the gunks. I mean, it was just uh, oh really? Yeah, well, yeah, well. yeah. You know, it was. I mean, it was <laughs> Did your you tires know, slashed or whatever? Well, you know, maybe not. It was never a violent place that way, but right, it, uh, right. it. But you know, it was still a time where anything you did, like if I came back after my first trip to Europe, after you know, eighty one, when I saw the first, the first burgeoning, you know, the birth of what I saw of sport climbing becoming, and I tried wrapping down some wall and and placing bolts. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I would have been excommunicated from the tribe. There's no question. But you know, I, I think there just weren't many as many people climbing over in Europe as, as uh, from America at the time. So I was really lucky to see that all happen. But at the same time, you know, I had I had a big issue with it myself in one way. There was a time in, in rock climbing where there was a decision to be made. What what is difficulty? Is difficulty simply the gymnastic aspect of doing hard moves, or is difficulty also something that goes with the mental fortitude needed to do really scary routes? And look at something like John Backer as as the godfather of uh, that ethic. And I think that really held a very high place in American climbing thinking. And you know, for all we know, if Europe was not blessed with like eight billion crags of limestone which don't allow yourself to really be climbing a traditional american mindset you know who knows how it would have gone it's just you know there's a certain kind of rock that is going to eventually bring you to a place that's going to say you know, either you're going to do something different or not going to climb this stuff or not much of it anyway i mean the first trip i made to europe in 81 you know bukes um all the roots of bukes were trad roots i mean there were like pitons here and there and bolts but you know we climbed the cracks and uh those were really the climbs there. That whole sticks wall had one climb on it. It was a girdle traverse. <laughs> I mean, nothing went straight up or down. So, and, and the Verdun was the same way. They were basically trad routes. So you brought your rack, you did stuff. But eventually what what uh, what sport climbing really did show was what we embrace is difficulty. Sure, we will give a nod to boldness all the time and we'll think that's badass when you, you know, when you, well, you know, take about the most badass thing that happened in the last couple of years, you know, when Honnold Solo's El Cap, that's pretty badass. But even to a certain degree, if you want to get really strict about it, if you go back to some mindsets of what Solo was about, that wouldn't have counted because it was practiced. You know, you have to go up there and just know what the hell is not going to come up and, you know, up you go. But really, in the end, what climbers have embraced for the most part is difficulty and Look at we all chase grades at one point or another. You know, we all want to climb a little harder than we did, and we'd rather climb harder without thinking that we might die. So it it totally makes sense as progression in in what has become a sport. So I I I see it. But when I go back to the gunks, I mean, one of the things that always was a measure of the gunks was you know the, the trad climbing bold mindset, and uh, 
And to a degree, that still still lives here. But I think about what Will Moss just did here in the Gunx when he he freed what essentially an old aid route called "The Best Things in Life Aren't Free." There was a section of it that had not gone, and he created a you know really one of the hardest trad lines now in the world. You know, fourteen D R. He's pulling off these V V eleven or twelve moves with your small nut about fifteen feet below you, and. Uh, it's it's horrifying to think about. (laughs) So anyway, I think that in the end, what most people want out of climbing these days is is to have a good time and press the grades, try real hard. And, uh, but I don't think there's as much of an appetite and there's no need to have the appetite to go endanger yourself. So I'm still psyched that the gunks, the gunks did go through a little era of uh, testing out the sport climbing world. You know, we did, place some bolts here and there. And uh, then, you know, there's a trad folks who would come and chop them. Then the bolts get placed again. And after that happened enough, the Mohawk Preserve, which is a preserve, and they own most of the climbing cliffs, said, that's enough of that. The new rules will be there's no more bolts. Anything placed before 1986 can remain. It can be replaced, but that's it. No more bolts, no more pitons. And that, you know, that that definitely ensured that the place was going to stay what it is. I think of it as being our grit stone. Well, one of the things about you traveling is that you, and I, I just say this from my own experience, is that you learn that you don't have to apply, you know, the same thing that happens in rifle to Eastern Europe or wherever you happen to be. And and I think that's probably as much as you said you were chicken shit to bring back these things, which is, you know, with the gunk's history, that makes sense, you know, <laughs> to be worried about bringing back, but also an under, understanding and a judiciousness about how well this works in the Verdun, but it doesn't have to apply here, and and that's such this like weird black and white argument that goes on through climbing, where where you know everybody is who's anti bolt is assuming that the bolters are just going to show up and and spray bolts anywhere, and I guess maybe that is a, a bit of a fear now because the the climbing community is too big and and hard to sort of regulate inside the community, but you know part of traveling the world is understanding that this works here, this is what the locals do here. And it ain't going to happen over there and, and not back at the gunks um, in any way that that would probably be okay. Yeah, I think, you know, it's pretty much set at this point. I, mm-hmm. I, uh, if there's a bolt war going on someplace, I, I don't know about it. So if you think about it too, people have gotten to be so good. I mean, you think about top sport climbers, they're pretty much, they can go out and do uh, most things that are trad without worrying too much about endangering themselves. But, you know, there's always... I mean, there's still some horrendously scary. When I think some of the things I see, I'm like, whoa, no way. You know, 514R, 514X, fuck that. That's where the top rope comes in. I'm <laughs> <laughs> much lower. I mean, 510X, put the top rope. Russ, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about what the book is about? I mean, I could do my own hack job of describing it, but I'd love to hear in your own words what, what this book's about. And, and I'd also be interested to know why you decided to write it. Deciding to write it is actually an easier question um, because I've traveled a bunch. I have a bunch of stories about places I've traveled to, and uh, I've had friends encourage me over the years, like, oh, man, someday you got to write a book about this stuff. So two things happened. One one is I basically retired, and I had nothing to do, and it's better than cleaning the house. I'd much rather sit down with my computer and type out some stories. But secondly, I, when I read um, Bill Finnegan, William Finnegan, writer for The New Yorker magazine, wrote his Pulitzer Prize-winning memoir, Barbarian Days, is Surfing Life. 
And uh, I read that some years ago, six, seven years ago, I guess. When I read it, I mean, I was so enthralled. First of all, when I lived in California working for Chouinard and Black Diamond, I, I took up surfing, so I fell in love with the sport alone. Surfing is just a beautiful, beautiful sport. But, you know, reading Bill's memoir about traveling to uh, places really that were not on the map yet. You know, he took off with a bunch of marine charts, you know, figured and figured out like how swells would work in weather systems. And, you know, he ended up being, in some instances, the first person to surf these immaculate waves, which today charge a thousand bucks a day for some surf camp. I, I realized there was a certain parallel to what he did, what I did in climbing. Um, so that I thought, oh, this would be kind of fun. And when I sat down and started writing it, I, it it's it was it took a little while to figure out what I wanted to do with all these stories, but it came forth that I really want to talk a little bit about the gunks and the history that most people don't know. If you look at a movie like, uh, you know, any movie about the valley, everybody knows about Yosemite Valley, and there's a whole mythology about the valley, which uh, exists, some of which is true, and some of which is just well, a little less true, or maybe mostly myth. But in, in essence, the, the valley holds, and rightly so, a fantastic place in the lore of American climbing. And if I go climbing someplace, this happens all the time, and I say, where are you? they say, where are you from? I said, um, we live in a climbing area called the Gunks in New York. No one knows what the hell I'm talking about. I mean, literally, it's, it's so rare to hear anybody say, oh, yeah, I've heard of that. Nobody knows where the Gunks is. And I really wanted to give the Gunks its props in this. And I think I did with... Uh, that era of John Standard and uh, John Bragg, uh, Steve Wunsch and Henry Barber in uh, 1973 to 74, is one of the most outstanding efforts in, Amer in rock climbing worldwide that has ever occurred anywhere. It's, it was absolutely groundbreaking and, uh, and magical. So I wanted to make sure that uh, that story was, was, was known. And uh, that was part of it. Then from there, I just thought, uh, giving a little travelogue of places I'd seen and what it meant over the course of mostly that book takes place during the 80s, where there was such fundamental change in the world of climbing. And also for me, it was very personal to talk about Wolfgang. And I wanted to, uh, I wanted to relate that, uh, that story as well, because he, he was a very special guy. Yeah, that's a great description. And uh, as, as a, a fellow climber who started climbing in the gunks, I really enjoyed you know, hearing those stories, some of which I didn't know. You capture the magic of that place, but you know, I'd love to hear, your, or maybe just share with uh, with everyone, like, what do you love about the gunks? I mean, you've been climbing there since you know the seventies, so you know, what is it that keeps your attention? Because it's a it's a place that, um, sure, there's lots of roots, but I could see how you could, you know, kind of fall out of favor with it. Like a lot of it's like on the easier side, you know, maybe it's not. Where do you keep the the energy to to keep climbing at the gunks? You know, it's a really the reality is I I I climb at the gunks about uh, I'll bet I get onto the crag the rock maybe fifteen to twenty times a year. That's how little, even though it's three miles from my house. For the simple reason, well, first of all, the style of climbing is less suitable for me uh, now because it's very bouldery, a lot of small crimps, and that stuff just kind of hurts. I mean. I, I feel a lot better on slightly steeper rock with bigger holes and uh, and a slightly more you know physical. So 
uh, the, the it, it ain't the climbing so much. And I probably, you know, I do more in the way of easy routes and, and hard stuff. Mm -hmm. It's also not that much fun to go to routes that used to be warm ups and now you can't even do them. You know, it's like, okay, it's, you know, <laughs> at a certain point, yeah, there's a certain reality. You just, you know, my brain knows it, but my body, and my body really knows it, but still, you think, oh, what the fuck? <laughs> this, this kind of sucks, which is, all the more reason to go travel someplace and kid yourself like you still have some relevance <laughs> but the but the place itself is amazing i'm on the preserve if i'm not climbing i'm still when i'm here i'm on the preserve every day and there's wonderful trails and great hiking and and i've i've been on the preserve board now for uh, the board of directors for 27 or so years and chaired at the last uh, five or six so I, I find it really rewarding to kind of give back to a place that gave me so much and uh and the climbing is great. I mean, it's just a matter of, uh, you know, what you want to do. But you're right. It's, I don't think you can have some place you've been for, you know, almost 50 years and not have it get old. Although I must say, I certainly have enough acquaintances here who've been here for as long and longer than myself who still go, go out and they, they uh, don't have a problem with just doing the stuff they've done for years. And I, uh, that's the other thing is I, I get really bored of repeating roots. How many times have you guys done 80 feet of me? <laughs> How many times? <laughs> At least 80. How about I put another zero behind that? I'm quite sure. Um, how has, I haven't been to, back to the gunks in years, but um, how has it survived the, uh, the climbing boom of the last decade and, you know, being so close to New York City and, uh, you know, the influx of, you know, I'm sure it's 10x climbers over the last 10 years. How, how's the uh, gunks kind of stood up to to that increased pressure in traffic? It's done. It's done. I think really well, Andrew. And there's two things that go into it. One is the preserve has a limited amount of parking, so if you're going to plan on coming up here on a beautiful fall weekend and go climbing, and you arrive after nine a.m., you just might be SOL on even being able to get on the property. So um, that is a bit of a uh, that's a bit of a factor for sure. But I think it's kind of cool to tell you the truth. There's so many climbers up there. It's 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 really kind of a neat thing because you will see folks who have been here for as long as I have and longer going out to go dawdle up whatever they want to dawdle. And you'll see a bunch of crash pads on every single major boulder area around uh, the carriage roads. And then other people are just getting after it. And it's uh, so it's, I think it's handled it quite well. So back to your... um travel log part of the book can you maybe tell a story even if it's not in the book or if it's in the book about sort of a lost horizon type place that you went you know you mentioned bill finnegan's book barbarian days and about you know them crashing through the jungle and occasionally finding the the you know the new nirvana but but a lot of times not finding anything um or finding disease or running out of food or all these other things so is there a story out there of you crashing through the perver proverbial jungle to find something rad or to be disappointed or just a point unknown that you can describe? Well, you know, you, you, what you made me think of there, Chris, was actually uh, witnessing how much things changed in Europe so quickly. And I'll oh, go yeah. back to that initial trip when I, I was at Bukes in 81. And it was me, my girlfriend, Melinda, these two Brits were staying at the same campground at Bonnier with us. And Ron Fawcett was there with his wife, Jill. And that was about it. So like six people, 
I mean, it's summertime. It was stupid, but we didn't know about climbing in the sun at that time. So, you know, we're on summer vacation. It's August. It's Bukes. It's hot. But regardless, there's just nobody else around. And then uh, I think the next time I was there was 80, well, 87 or something like that. And holy shit, completely different scene. Places packed. There's roots everywhere. And this place, it was kind of this bucolic rural scene. It turned into like a micro city of, of climbers and, and, uh, and also people just like ripping it up, climbing really, really hard. And I don't, I don't suppose that's so much a, a loss as it's just a progression, but it was very, I, I, that was shocking because for me, it was like I had this image in my mind of this place being a certain way. <laughs> it was like, if you expected to go to like Green Acres and instead you found Times Square, like, whoa, right. it's, this is really, really different. Your book is interesting, Russ, because it, it does, fo- as you mentioned, it kind of focuses on the 80s. And, um, you know, as I was reading it, I was like, man, there's like three decades of climbing that Russ has been doing after after this book, um, which p- potentially is a, a part two that you can start working on if, um, you know, once this once uh, your book hits the bestseller list. And after you get all the dust bunnies out from underneath the couch. <laughs> oh, yeah, God. after you clean the house. <laughs> um, but what, you know, I guess, did you, um, revisiting, you know, these these old memories from, you know, four decades ago at this point, and, you know, writing about some folks who have since passed and some folks who are still still around, did you, did, what did you kind of learn about yourself or your relationship to climbing um, through this experience? When I was writing this, I had, uh, I was lucky to have journals and most of my journals weren't really, they weren't diary like they were basically, I climbed at frog at this day and did these routes. So it was just, you know, a list of that stuff. And I also used to always carry a camera. So I had photos to go with that stuff so I could, you know, go through that stuff. But at the same time, in some stories, I had to go reach out to folks to make sure that I'm remembering things correctly, or at least we have a, a common, a common idea of what happened at the time. And that was really fun to uh, to do that to you know ask Moffat, hey, do you remember this? You know, yeah, he remembers that. And my old girlfriend Melinda, who I, she's like, yep, I remember that too. And Strapo, and so there was that was really fun. That that was a good part of it. But at the same time, too, I mean, parts of that became really melancholy for me as well. You know, recognizing um, first of all how much how much water's under the bridge. I mean, that's a constant reality. But secondly, that, uh, you know, some of those folks, I'm just never got a chance to talk with, I'll never talk to again. And uh, that was, that was kind of, you know, that was kind of difficult at times to, to think about and to write about. But at the same time, it, it was celebratory. It was, uh, it was fun. I wouldn't say it was any kind of cathartic. It was just an uh, event. It was just basically, God, it was just kind of weird to go back and, and, you know, go through all that stuff, you know, chronologically and then kind of figure out where it went. And it was, uh, it was a journey. And I'm not really sure that anything I have to say after that period, to your point, Chris, is really, to me, is relevant. And I think, Chris, you, you know, I know you're a fan of the 80s and how much it changed the world of climbing. And I agree. I think, you know, those of us who lived through that period, especially if we were traveling, you know, we got to witness and, and experience it. And I think some of those changes that occurred in the 80s, especially when you just think about the advent of sport climbing, that was a tsunami that I don't think climbing has gone through since. I don't think any single other thing has ever changed this. Well, I'm going to say it turned it into 
uh, an outdoor activity into a into a sport, a true sport. And now I think it's actually hitting its real stride as a sport with its representation in the Olympics in uh, in its various forms. Although I still don't get speed climbing, but anyway, you know it's it's out there. And uh, and if you go, you know, what gym doesn't have a youth team? I mean, this is soccer. This is you know this is really where it's it's, it's come. So I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think if you look at stories I would have from the uh, from the 90s to the aughts to now are are they're they're much more common experiences that many many climbers could tell the same kind of story. And I, you know, I've had a few uh, old friends read read uh, the uh, the galley of this, and uh, they said, "Oh my God, I felt like I did the same thing." You know, and because there are a few of us who are doing that stuff, like it's yeah, it's a it's a it's not an uncommon story. But the thing is, uh, I think what made made my experience different is I. I really was traveling so much more and being and experiencing those those things firsthand from the initial side of sport climbing to the first ever international competition to, you know, just uh, hanging out with some of those folks that aren't around anymore. So, yeah, it was a it was a journey and not one I'm sure I'll ever take again. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's a really fascinating point. The, the 80s were kind of the the last uh, wave of of kind of the the ethical debates of trying to figure out what the sport looks like and what, what's fair and what's not fair and stuff. And then it kind of got solidified and then it's, it's all just kind of been progressing forward along those lines that were carved out at that time. But there was a real uncertainty about which direction the, the sport could go in, in, in the 1980s. And, you know, people like yourself and your peers were the ones who were putting forth the ideas about which, you know, which direction you think the sport should go and how that should you know, maybe take on different manifestations depending on where you are um, and so forth. There's another part of your book that I, th- I found in- a little interesting, which was just your, you alluded to, you know, getting into the outdoor industry as a professional, you know, working at Chouinard equipment and stuff like that. And why don't you tell us a little bit about just your experience with uh, working in the outdoor industry and how that's changed and really maybe just what it was like back back in the 80s when it was kind of this early proto industry so to speak <laughs> yeah well that that was just an that was just the, uh, an accident of, of of so many things coming together which it's it's I still look at it and see how crazy it was so um I had been on a trip to uh out in California Joshua Tree and uh on that trip I met Mariah Crater and Johnny Woodward they were a couple at the time and Mariah was working as the uh, marketing director at uh, at Chouinard. and Mariah was an intense person. I mean, honestly, a true genius and and super affable, really funny. And uh, she, uh, anyway, we got along really well. So I, but but to back up a little bit, um, after that eighty-five trip to Europe, where I was at the first pro comp with Wolfgang. Long story short, neither one of us were very fond of it. We thought it was real aberration in climbing and kind of fucked up. Um, it also included as before there were any uh, walls, so they basically just chipped the hell out of this uh, this cliff in in Italy and they in Bardonecchia and they they held this thing and it, the whole vibe was so completely anti climbing as far as we were concerned, Wolfgang and I. Um, I thought it was miserable, but I anyway. I, you know, long story short, I had my own come to Jesus moments and what am I going to do with climbing? And I realized I had a I had you know I had I had a Rubicon to cross. What am I going to do here? 
So I went back to school, to grad school, and I wasn't sure I was going to do after that. And it just happened that uh, I was giving a presentation at the American Alpine Club meeting in Denver in 86. And Mariah was there. And uh, she said, hey, you know, we, uh, we want to hire you. And I said, wow, well, doing what? And she said, well, Peter Metcalf, uh, he's here and he wants to talk to you. I said, all right. So Peter was the boss. He was the general manager of Chenard Equipment at the time. So Peter uh, said, yeah, Mariah speaks very highly of you and we want you to come uh, uh, come to work for us. I said, well, doing what? He goes, well, we need somebody to uh, manage and grow our export business. I was like, I don't know three is a fuck all about that. I mean, I have no idea. I got a grad, I got a, I got a master's in sports psychology and a BA in geography. I mean, what I, I don't, I don't, you know, he said, no, you well, knew where you know, Europe was. I, well, you know, <laughs> that cast, <laughs> this is how simplistic it was. He said, well, you must know a lot of people. Like, right. fuck. Yeah, of course. I mean, if that's a job qualification, sign me up. But anyway, I went out, to, I went out to go visit the, uh, the uh, place and uh, I still wasn't sure. And the job offer, I mean, the money was such an insult in a way. It was just like I'd been day trading while I was in grad school and I was making way more money than Peter was offering me just to go to work for him in, uh, in Ventura. But anyway, I decided to do it. It was time to do something. And uh, I was tired of uh, the school scene. So I went out there and then it turned out that I found the work really enjoyable. Plus with the, with the, with the side benefit, of a ton of travel, which I didn't mind doing, which meant going to a bunch of places I could go climb during these various business trips, visiting with Wolfgang on a regular basis, at least a, at least a couple of times a year, if not more. And uh, that was all super fun. But the real the real uh, change came when Yvonne Chouinard, uh, Chapter 11 Chouinard Equipment, uh, because of fear of, uh, of several lawsuits against the company, that was a, a big change because suddenly we were essentially kind of going out of business. And uh, Peter Metcalf and Mariah were uh, adamant that we could do something about this. We thought at first somebody would come and buy the company. But 1989 was a really bad time for, for, uh, for loans. Money supply was super tight. Just, we just had a savings and loan crisis and there was nobody who was that interested in picking us up, even though as Ashenard Equipment, we were like still like the preeminent American brand in, in climbing. But, you know, Peter and Mariah figured out, well, ain't nobody buying us. So how are we going to buy this thing out of Chapter 11? So essentially, it was the employees. About There were about 60 employees uh, at the uh, start of the Chapter 11 uh, debacle. And about 40 were left by the time we had cleaned up and, and got the buyout. So we put in our own money. We asked friends and family for money. We uh, we had all of our uh, distributors pretty much actually buy into it to a certain degree, and miraculously, that was the uh, the start of it. It was it was truly the odds of that thing ever happening the way it did were so low, but it did. And I got to say, it ended up being a superb uh, way of uh, morphing a living into a climbing life without ever worrying about performance on a, on a, on a cliff. I mean, I couldn't have been any luckier, luckier. Even if you, even if I became a quote unquote pro climber in 1985, there wasn't that much money out there. I mean, even Wolfgang was still, you know, he was making a good deal of his money by appearances, you know, doing slideshows and, and that kind of stuff. It wasn't like he was just getting like, oh yeah, here's 50,000 bucks or 60,000 bucks from this guy and 70 from that. The only person 
in, uh, I'm going to go as far as like 88. I would say maybe the only person I saw that was making a true good living, because I saw one of the contracts he had from Reebok, was uh, Patrick Elanger. He was making serious bank as a, as a superstar French climber. But that he might have been the, the lone person I would say was actually making a true, like, I could own a, house, a nice house, have a nice car, food on the table, money in the bank for retirement. He might have been like the only one doing it at the time. So it was really, really uh, rare. So, yeah, I, I, I lucked out big time. And I never had it. I, and I never worked. Don't tell Metcalf that. <laughs> I love that phrase, morphing a living into a climbing life. Um, I think we could all be so lucky. <laughs> well, I think I'm looking at two or trying to do the same thing. Yes, yeah, that's right. <laughs> look, you know, it's 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 not easy. Even you know today's top climbers uh, who are making a living doing it. Uh, I mean, it's it's awesome. I just think it's really great that you can that there's a a handful that are doing that. But I would bet if we if we went back in time to pick out you know the cream of the crop climbing the hardest routes, making a living doing that. We went back like uh, even just 20 years. And then we looked at that number today. If you took that as as the percentage of climbers doing it, it probably isn't that different. I, you know, it's, I just think there's still, yeah, there's more money out there, but there's also more climbers. It's still really hard, I think, to actually make a living as a true pro climber, basically getting paid just for the act of climbing, not having to go out and you know, do a bunch of presentations, not have, you know, it's like you get paid because you're going out there and doing stuff. We're going to give you money for just going and adventuring. That's still a pretty tough nut to, and, and, and to have a lifespan of more than say six to 10 years. Yeah. See, that's the thing that I always know too, is that especially if whatever you're doing, it always begins a little bit performance-based, you know, like, oh, you're a good climber. Let's Let's get you involved with our brand or whatever, because people are watching what you're doing. Um, but then, as you said, morph, even professional climbers have to morph that into something along those lines, but not performance based after a while. I mean, Chris Sharma is still banging out super hard pitches, um, but he's kind of the, you know, his longevity at the top is, has been remarkable, you know, as opposed to someone else who starts to fall off and then they have to, I mean, it's not quite as cynical as like you have to put up the numbers, but you but it is part of the game. And especially, I think, 20 years ago, it was even more so part of the game. So finding something sustainable is also the the game. And you mentioned, you know, even going as far as to having some idea of retirement and benefits. Like, that rarely comes with any of those contracts where there's some, you know, I think of even, like, regular sports NFL contracts where, you know, people last five years, four years, three years, and then they have a whole lifetime of, of trying to figure out what else to do. That's true. And, you know, if you want to take somebody from my era that, uh, you know, I mean, arguably one of the greatest uh, climbers uh, uh, in modern times is, is Lynn Hill. And uh, Lynn has, she's managed to create a living out of, out of her name, out of doing, a, she does, she does a lot of appearances. She does a lot of talks. She does her clinics. So she's, uh, she's cobbled together a, a good living by doing that. But uh, she was never anybody who just made a ton of money from sponsors throwing them at her just to go rock climbing. You know, if Lynn was at her, if, if takes Lynn's ability at the time now, I mean, she, she's Yanni Gombrich. 
she's just crushing everything and doing everything and and uh, making you know making hot, good you know six figure living, but that just didn't exist for very many people at, at, at when she was at her peak. Regardless of the fact that she was just the most astonishing climber around, you know one of the models I see that make that kind of thing work for if you look at Patagonia and, and their stable of professional climbers, you know, some of those folks like, uh, like Kate Rutherford also works for the company. She works on product design. So, you know, there's places like that that create space, but that I'd say Patagonia is an outlier. Now you're not going to find many brands uh, that can bring those pro climbers into the fold. Maybe, you know, some like North Face certainly can as well, but there's not going to be a lot of uh, sponsors that have the, uh, just the bandwidth to do that. One of the other things I think makes you a good friend and someone to climb with, someone that I would seek out to climb with and and to travel with, is that you've also avoided the crust uh, to a certain extent. And you know, maybe you have private thoughts, and you you share a little bit about trying to avoid the crowds. But you know, again, if you're stuck with all these ethical conundrums, that can always result in like, oh, the new generation is sucks and they're wimps and climbing is ruined and blah, blah, blah. You know, all those things that come with growing older as a climber, you know, and also you joked about, you know, <laughs> getting beat down on your former warmups that can cause problems. So tell me a little bit about avoiding that, you know, attitude that, that can come with, uh, with someone who's growing older in the sport, um, watching it change. Um, why, why have you been able to keep such a great attitude, at least publicly. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> late at night, you curse, you curse the the you know the thirteen year old that sent your your test piece or whatever. But um, yeah, where where do you keep that good attitude? That's why I keep on trying to find places around the world where I haven't climbed and there's nobody else around. Keep right. <laughs> uh, climbing is a shitty sport to be old, get old in. Let's just start there, especially technical rock climbing. Performance is going to go downhill. And uh, that's just all there is to it. So my choice personally is to enjoy my time out at the crag with friends, not get totally pissed off about how I'm climbing, just try and have fun. I mean, find routes that I can do that are enjoyable. It's, it's, It's not that big of a secret. I the other thing too that I find is I have no appetite for projecting. My idea of a project, if I didn't do it in my second try, move on. It's like, that's it. I don't, I don't care. And, you know, some folks are really good at doing that and some folks are bad. I I just realized if I was going to get stuck in a project, that would actually, it would ruin my desire to actually even go out and climb. So I don't know. I think it's recognizing things in ourselves, Chris. I think it's just uh, coming to terms with getting older, coming to terms with uh, the uh, limitations of doing that and kind of just being all right with it and enjoying the rest of the experience uh, that climbing brings us. I mean, being outside on a gorgeous day in the fall and just being lucky enough to go ahead and just relax by you know, getting amped up about 70 feet of rock. Is that my big fucking problem? I mean, <laughs> that's a good problem to have. And and to, again, to the same point of traveling, I, there's so many places to go and there's still tons of experiences to have with uh, like-minded people that uh, end up sometimes being really good friends. Matter of fact, this, this uh, trip to Brazil you know, we had uh, the last four days, we couldn't stay in the main house we were staying with. So we uh, stayed at an Airbnb with a, a couple, another couple. They're, they're guides uh, in the area. They take people on climbs. They take people on hikes, Deborah and, and Max. 
And we stayed with them for four days. And now we have planned a trip to Argentina with them for three weeks in uh, this coming March. So, you know, those kinds of experiences, like hopefully the trip works out well. We don't know them that well. They may end up hitting each other, but we'll give it a good try. But, uh, you know, those kinds of uh, experiences really make, uh, they just make the whole climbing world fun to me. And that's, uh, I think I can keep continue to enjoy that until, well, I, until I can't climb at all which might be next week or it might be 10 years from now. Who knows? Might already have happened. <laughs> it, might, it maybe did. You know, <laughs> when, you, when you unloaded a, to a cord of, of hardwood the other day, which I don't know if we have that recorded, but we were talking about it before the show. So. Yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't a very smart move. I'll find out. We're taking, uh, we're taking some friends out uh, to do some easy routes this afternoon. They haven't gone climbing before, so I'll find out. All right. I have faith. I have faith you'll be able to get up something. (laughs) (laughs) I'll do my best. (laughs) Imagine climbing without ethics, without concern for your fellow climbers, where the best among us are merely our employees, and a moral compass so out of whack that stepping over a dead or dying body on the way to your project is commonplace. Well, dear listener, you don't have to imagine this. Just tune into the nihilistic world of 8,000-meter climbing, and you'll find Nietzsche gnawing on the bones of Kierkegaard while Camus looks on. On the latest bonus episode for Rope Guns Only, the runout once again takes a deep dive into the latest news from the rarefied air on top of the world, sullying ourselves so you don't have to, and giving another glimpse of what happens when you throw out the rules and replace them with the endless hunger of Moloch. So join us at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast to get the latest doozy of a bonus episode and all the other bonus material and to simply support the show. That's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast to become a rope gun today. Today's final bit is some music from the Buffalo, New York-based climber Lambros Marcusis performing as the artist Sorbmal. Here is the song Numb.
just finished another episode of the runout podcast i'm andrew bisharat and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com and i'm chris kaluse and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com <laughs> dude come on <laughs> because chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die that's true we also have a patreon that you can support our show at and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com no no, no patreon.com slash runout podcast yes <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life <laughs> you should go and sign up at patreon slash runout podcast.com <laughs> no pot.com slash runout podcast something like that give us some money